I remember getting my meningitis vaccine when I was about eight or nine. Didn't hurt that much, but meningitis does, so it felt like a good choice. And then recently I had hep B, C, typhoid and tetanus because I went to the Caribbean. And I felt a little bit faint afterwards, but didn't want to let on to the nurse because I'm squeamish, but I'm also proud. So I just styled it out and probably went gradually more and more grey-faced and sleepy looking. My view of vaccines is pretty simple. I'll have any that's offered to me because risking a disease is terrifying. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac already and I believe that vaccines work. You might feel the same way. Not everyone shares that view though, as you probably already know. I want to set my stall out right now and be clear about my own biases. I'm coming to this topic as someone who automatically accepts vaccines to be important and good for us. Now that's not to say that I've spent hours reading all the stats and studies. I haven't. I've assumed it. We'll be discussing the other perspective quite openly though, and I've tried to dissect my biases wherever I can. This episode won't be going through the evidence for one side versus the other. That's not what this podcast is about. And to be honest, I find the science quite dull. Sorry, not sorry. And I don't say that to be disrespectful to the people who do value the scientific side and do care about that. It's just that I think there's... My voice just broke. I think there's more in this topic than just the science. And that's the bit that I want to explore. This episode is about why people have a particular belief, not just about vaccines, but in general. What cements that and what can potentially change their mind, if ever. It's also about how we're all terrible at seeing things from another person's perspective. So I'm not going to be changing anyone's mind today. (laughs) Fuck that shit. But I will hopefully demonstrate that even if we believe the absolute polar opposite to someone else, we're all quite similar. So in case you don't know, vaccination is a huge debate and let's call it a battleground on the internet. There are a few different enemies in the anti-vax world, the main three being drug companies, the medical community and the government. Some think that vaccines cause disabilities and diseases, resulting in vaccine injury. Many also think the true impact of this has been hidden from us, and there are far more vaccine-injured people out there than government figures let on. Others think that drug companies are using us as guinea pigs, or possibly even injecting us with all sorts of bizarre shit. There are some who prefer natural medicine like homeopathy and don't trust medical intervention. They'd probably turn down a LEMSIP, that's how seriously they take it. The two sides of this are just as impassioned and that's why they conflict with each other so much because they're both absolutely convinced that they're right and the other side has got it all wrong. The anti-vaxxers are predominantly parents who are militant about making the right decision for their child and making sure other people do too. The pro-vax community is less defined because a lot of people are pro-vaccine but they never necessarily go on a message board about it. For some, the main priority is education. They don't think the anti-vax side are using the right sources. Some, though, really enjoy laughing at and mocking anti-vaxxers. In their eyes, they're some of the stupidest people to ever exist. And obviously, you know, for the anti-vax side, that doesn't make them feel great. This subject, at first, I considered not doing it because 
I've been researching it for about five or six weeks quite intensely. I, it was very, it's very angry at times. And I find people who like to beat each other over the head with rationality and knowledge and sources a little bit unbearable. And I even did a poll on Twitter about it. I know that quite a few people requested this and I considered ignoring you all. There is more to this than I realised and maybe more than you realised too. So I scoured Facebook groups of all perspectives, pro, anti, anti versus pro, uh, to find people who have changed their mind one way or the other. And I found two women who used to be anti-vax and are now vaccinating their kids and their position has evolved over time. I tried to find people who changed their minds the other way or who were very, very firm who would talk to me, but it was virtually impossible. More on that later. This is Emily and Courtney. My oldest is 10, so when I had him, there was a lot of fear around autism and the MMR vaccine, and that was not something that I was willing to risk at all. When I finally started to do some research, I realized that a lot of the anti-vax stuff came from mommy blogs and stories of people who have experienced horrific things and are looking for something to blame. And vaccines are really easy to blame. When she was born, she I didn't get the hep B for her. She got her vitamin A, she got the eye stuff, but I didn't get her the hep B because I yeah, really loved it, sure, after everything that I've heard. You would read something about, oh, well, my child, this happened to my child, that's why I don't vaccinate anymore and I don't believe in them, and, you know, vaccine injuries are real. And the pro-vax would be just, you know, jump down their throat. Oh, there's so many other reasons for that. It could have been anything. You know, it would be very hard in that situation to, to really know or decide. The group that I asked the most questions in was a group called Vaccines Exposed because I found that in other groups that I was in, every time you ask a question, one of the moderators or admin gets on there and says, this is an anti-vax group and all answers will be anti-vax related and if anyone has anything pro-vax to say, they'll be the fan. That's not giving anybody the opportunity to really hear both sides of the story. That's very one-sided. And I decided that that wasn't where I wanted to get my answers. I wanted to try to get my answers from places where I would get some real information. And I found more and more that when I would go through the links that the anti-vaxxers would provide me, it was leading me down stories. It was leading me to a story of a mother who had something horrible happen to her child after vaccinations. When I would follow the links that the pro-vaxxers would give me, I would find actual science. I would find real studies and lots of them, not just one or two, but a lot of information that was there that never brought me to a blog somewhere. And when I really started to think about it, it was scary to think that I was putting the health of my children, I was putting my faith in blogs. I had such a hard time deciding, like it was terrible. Just going back and forth, like, well, does she need them? Are they okay? And then, so finally, just after talking to people that I actually knew, that was when I was like, okay, well, they've never had a bad experience. They're probably fine. I read studies, and I went to, there was a few government sites that I went to because, you know, I feel like those are more 
you're going to find more accurate information. I went to one site that was about vaccine injuries, and it listed um, all the different vaccines and any reactions that had happened. And that really surprised me because you hear so much about reactions, but then actually going on that site, I didn't see as many as I thought I would. And so that was kind of very interesting to me it was you know one of the times where i was like okay these are probably not as bad as people are making them out to be it must be scary to read a horror story from someone did you feel like the anti-vaxxers were sort of scaring you into a decision it does feel like that it still feels like that sometimes i'm still part of a lot of anti-vax groups because i like to see what's going on and who really knows maybe one day Science will show us that these are horrible, horrible things, and they were right all along. I don't really believe that would happen. At this point, both of my children and myself are completely up to date. We've received our boosters. We're as vaccinated as we can be. (laughs) One person's absolute fact is another's conspiracy theory. Nowhere is that more true than the pro and anti-vax communities. Considering the anti-vax enemies are really big, like drug companies with bottomless cash big, for some there's a clear link between anti-vaccine belief and conspiracy theory belief. A lot of people on anti-vax groups feel like vaccines are imposed on them by shady powerful organisations, and they're not actually getting accurate truthful information. Whether it's true or not, sounds a lot like a conspiracy to me. Conspiracy theories are a normal process. They are not for the people who are paranoid or wearing tinfoil hats. There is a general phenomenon that's across the whole population. Of course, those who are paranoid, that does play a role. But for most people, that doesn't seem to be the cause. It's other reasons, wanting to be controlled, certain, wanting to explain these big events. They want to know why did Diana die? And to be told, well, as a drunk driver, doesn't really fit that humongous event, doesn't really fit that minor cause. But if you say Diana was murdered by the royal family or the government or whatever it is, that makes more sense. You're like, right, Diana, big event, being murdered by the government, equally big cause, that makes sense. This is Dr. Daniel Jolly, a lecturer in psychology at the University of Staffordshire. He specialises in the psychology of conspiracy theories and recently published a study which tested how positively or negatively people viewed vaccines after reading both mainstream and conspiratorial accounts of them. I saw him do a talk about a year ago. It was really good. It was like a lecture, but in a bar. I think I might have got a first if my uni had done things like that, or a third. Could have gone either way. The world's complicated. There's so many things happening at once. So it's our tendency to want to have answers, to want to explain what's going on. So it's our kind of bias in our minds that makes us more likely to think about conspiracy theories. It just seems to be that they're so persuasive. Then we have biases like confirmation bias, where we look for evidence that confirm our beliefs. So if we think Diana was murdered by the government, we start distrusting the government, we then start looking for other events that may indeed be a government conspiracy. So it could come our worldview. Unfortunately, at least yet, there's no quick solution. 
it seems to be like with fake news, of course, that you evaluate what you're given. You look for multiple sources. You don't just treat the first bit of evidence as that's the concrete evidence, but rather you look for similar stories across different news outlets, across different people with different viewpoints. Which is not something we always do naturally, because as I say, we stay with our same group of friends, our same followers, and just kind of stay in that, that, that mindset. But rather, it's thinking, actually, it's good to question things, that there isn't always just one answer. There could be multiple answers, and to seek those answers out. It's still a challenge to think about how you actually go and do that in reality, how you actually force yourself to do that. Could it be teaching our skills right from the early on, that there's always another side of the coin? which is actually a normal bias. That bias is present in all many different examples of life. It's not just conspiracy theories. It's just that when we have our belief, we want to stay with our belief. They have the same viewpoint, that speak the same message. So when you're not thinking about the kind of counter-argument and saying your little bubble, your belief remains. And indeed, think about our social media. Typically, people follow accounts that are similar to them rather they critically think about the information. So it is definitely a challenge to think about how we can actually intervene with conspiracy theories. I still want to in include free speech. I want people to question all different manners of evidence, both conspiratorial, but also, shall we say, the mainstream. You don't want to stop conspiracy theories because we want that questioning. It's just giving people the power not to fall into the trap of being exposed to conspiracy theories, let's say, on, on the news or on on both sides of the coin, both the conspiratorial account, but also the mainstream. From the research I've done into anti-vaccine conspiracy theory, it looks like a lot of people are doing exactly what they accuse non-believers of, being close-minded. Some of the good that comes out of conspiracy belief from my perspective is analysis and doubt. The government does lie to us sometimes. Science does evolve and change what's considered ethical or healthy or right. Doubt is good. It holds some people to account. It stops us from being gullible. When that turns into confirmation bias and being besotted with your own argument, though, surely you're not that enlightened at all, though, anymore at least. The thing about anti-vaccine belief is it's often rooted in deeply traumatic personal experiences, children being really ill and even dying after a vaccination. There were about six kids in my oldest son's grade one class who got chicken pox and that was kind of scary. When you are that northern BC, there's one doctor in town. There's not a fully staffed hospital. Where I was living when I finally made the decision to vaccinate my children, complications from chickenpox or measles could have killed them. It's a four-hour helicopter ride to the nearest fully equipped hospital. That's a scary thought. There was a child who passed away from complications related to the chickenpox because he didn't get. It wasn't something that it was a story that I read on the internet. It happened in town. It did hit close to home because it happened right here. I actually do know people in person that have never vaccinated their kids. Their kids have never been sick or any have never had the diseases. So that was really hard for me because I was like, okay, well, here are these perfectly high, highly intelligent, healthy kids who have never had a vaccine in their life. Their parents were very vocal about that and just like basically didn't believe in them. Seeing those kids who've never been vaccinated, I was like, well, that's what's the deal here? Because you hear so much like, oh, they're going to be so sick and they're, you know, they're going to get these diseases. As a parent, do you think that 
there is a temptation for parents to think that anything outside of their own influence is a threat and that they should just do it themselves. Yeah. Oh, yes. It can be very difficult to take other people's advice and other people's opinions about your children. It's really easy to do that, especially when so many people have such polarized opinions. Yeah, it's a lot easier to tell everybody to go away. I am going to make these decisions for my children by myself and I don't need the input of anybody else. I've approached uh, vocal, not very vocal anti-vaxxers and people who were just chilling in groups in the hope that they would talk on the podcast, whatever their reasons for believing what they believe. Even when I approach them quite openly and non-judgmentally and honestly, many are quite fired up and ready to prove me wrong and fight their corner and I'm just really not up for a fight. I often didn't even say what my stance was, many assumed what it was, um, or assumed I was on the fence, and to them that was kind of just as bad and just as offensive as being pro-vaccine. And that makes a conversation quite hard. I tell you what, it's not very often that I feel like I've offended someone the moment I open my mouth. It's a really bizarre feeling. One interview request I posted on an anti-vax Facebook group was just, God, it pained me to check my notifications because I, as a person, just hate back and forth debates in comments. No matter what the topic, they always end up being a bit pathetic because no one can perfectly articulate themselves all the time and you've got to wait for them to respond and then you can form your argument and everyone's got all their points ready on little cue cards. It's all very, "Mm, actually, I think you'll find. And it's very rare for someone to turn around and say, oh, I see, I get it, thanks, love, in a comment thread like that. No one's that open. Everyone is steadfast and difficult to relate to. If I came across, forget anti-vaccination, forget pro-vaccination, fuck it all. If I came across someone like that IRL, I just wouldn't engage unless I absolutely had to. They'd have to be giving me a blood test or a glass of Rioja. The exchange would have to be vital for me to speak to them. I just listened to that bit back and it sounds like I'm about to say uh, if someone's giving me a blowjob, um, which which is not what I was going to say. Um, I don't have the right attachments for that. I didn't really know why I have this reaction or why people behave like that in comment threads until I spoke to journalist and novelist Will Storr about his book, The Heretics. I found the heretics on Amazon and absolutely had to speak to him. I didn't even have to beg. He was dead up for it. The heretics is about Will's journey across the world to find out why obviously intelligent people believe things in spite of the evidence against them. He spoke to creationists, people who say yoga cures cancer, and he met their more rational, I'm doing air quotes by the way, counterparts. So the brain basically... It, it kind of builds this model of the world 
So that kind of world out there that we think that we are experiencing at any given moment is actually a make sense model that is actually inside our heads. So we're constantly kind of stuck inside our heads. For the first few years of our life, our, our kind of our, our brains are rapidly kind of building this model. But the brain's in this heightened height state of plasticity and, and it's kind of working out how the world works. But once we sort of hit kind of late adolescence or early 20s, the, the brain becomes much more conservative and it, become, and, it, and it moves into this kind of different state and it becomes kind of defensive of its models. So it's almost like the brain is made up its mind we're far more resistant to accepting ideas that kind of challenge our kind of deeper sense of how the world works during that time when we're kind of making up our minds and working out how the world works we have all kinds of different you know influences the moment we're born we're already genetically wired up in a certain way which, which, which makes us predisposed to becoming a certain kind of person I mean, obviously genes aren't destiny but people find when they look at for example our political beliefs I was told by the psychologist Jonathan Haidt that there's around a thousand genes involved and a lot of those genes are involved in our fear of novelty. So people on the left are generally much more comfortable with novelty and change uh, than people on the right. You're more sporty conservative, you want to conserve the world rather than, you know, smash it all up and start again. But also, your, your, you know, a big one is your social group. So it's, it's, it's how you identify. So there are all these things going on as we're growing up that end up kind of defining and forming who we are. And once we get to a certain place in our life, it's actually quite hard to shift these beliefs. The more those beliefs run to the very core of who you are, the more passionate you are about those beliefs, the more you identify with them as a kind of core part of who you are, the harder they are to shift. One of the things that I learned when I was researching heretics, somebody said to me, was that, was that if you want to spot irrationality, even in yourself, you look for the things that kind of people make sacred. We become really irrationally emotional about the things that we make sacred. So you can spot when somebody is not thinking rationally because they're losing their tempo and they're getting really passionate, emotional, because that's when their kind of cognition is kind of twisting and distorting and becoming really, really concerned with preserving that model of the world that you have. And this is one of the things I wanted to do with heretics because there's loads of people, especially like in the sceptical community, who are very emotional, very angry about these people and they, take it, and they take it very personally that they see the world in a very different way to the way they see it. Where that always seems to end up is them saying, oh, these people are stupid, they're idiots, and, and, and it's that very kind of judgy place. And for me, that's an intellectual dead end. And I think you've got to come from a place of genuinely trying to understand where they come from. Throw all that stuff out the window. They're stupid. They're idiots, you know, because that's going to get us nowhere. Let's actually find out why they believe what they believe and how they see the world. Because it's just amazing. I still find it amazing how differently two individuals can see the same world. If people suggest at least one in four believe in different types of conspiracy theories, so that's a lot of people. So to believe that they're all tinfoil hat wearers who are paranoid just doesn't really make sense. There has to be other explanations, which is why we kind of argue that it's more mainstream, that it's more normal. It's just our bias that we have across all our life that seems to also be present in belief in conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are very resistant to correction. In a second study, we found that being exposed to the idea that vaccines aren't safe, that they're covered up for profit, led to someone actually not wanting to vaccinate. When someone is presented with a conspiracy account, so for example, vaccines are indeed dangerous and that they're for profit, that seems to actually come embedded in their belief system. So when they're given counter-arguments, such as, actually vaccines are safe, it doesn't seem to improve their intention to want to vaccinate. So it's not just that they can stop us vaccinating, for example, but also can be very resistant to correction. So conspiracy theories can be pretty dangerous. I want to talk about schadenfreude for a minute, finding pleasure in someone else's pain. The Provax groups aren't always about smart science and evidence and laying out the facts. 
Sometimes they're quite mocking and people seem to be getting a weird enjoyment out of seeing anti-vaxxers proven wrong or suffer through their children's illnesses. There's a thread of images on a subreddit called Happened, titled What Happens When the Children of Anti-Vaxxers Get Sick? It's basically a series of screenshots from Facebook showing anti-vax parents telling their fellow anti-vaxxers and Facebook followers about their children getting sick, asking for help, remedies, advice and support. If you listen to the MLM episode, you'll find this attitude quite familiar. It's common amongst some who are strongly and vocally anti-MLM online. Their wish to highlight the dangers can sometimes evolve into, well, if you're going to be so stupid, then mockery. How much of this is perfectly human and how much is unnecessary aggression? Well, on the it's actually very human and normal side is an article called The Neurology of Schadenfreude, published by the Association for Psychological Science in 2011. It quotes a study done in 2004 by some psychology students from the very fancy Princeton University. They created a lab-conditioned version of a baseball game between two of the biggest rivals in the sport, the Yankees and the Red Sox. I believe they're very important to some people. They had ardent fans watch clips of previous games while their brains were scanned. I'm going to read you a bit, which is fascinating. Whether it was the joy of a favoured player's home run or the joy of a rival's strikeout, the fans' brains lit up in the same spot. So if we apply that to the vaccination argument, people aren't just trying to prove their own point. They're trying to prove other people wrong and maybe that's actually more satisfying. That's the whole point really because if their argument negates your argument, where do you stand? So the brain is this kind of storyteller. We are the kind of the centre around which everything else revolves. There was a recent study that came out and it found that one of the, if not the strongest bias that we have is believing that we are moral, believing that we are a moral person. And this is such a strong bias that that there were some um, British psychologists in 2014 went to a bunch of prisons and interviewed a lot of prisoners. The prisoners um, rated themselves as higher than average on all kinds of different pro-social characteristics and they rated themselves average on law-abidingness. It's just extraordinary that how good the brains at making us feel like we're good people. That's the thing you've got to understand is that people have these are full of biases and prejudices and that's the kind of source of their beliefs. In the book I met this really interesting guy called Lord Christopher Monkton. And so Chris Monkton is one of the founding members of UKIP. He's a real right-wing, old-school right-wing guy. And he was born into this aristocratic family. Um, he went to Harrow School. So he's very proud to tell me that the, the, the school song was from Harrow School to Rise and Rule. They were brought up to believe that they were going to be the masters of the universe. They were going to go into the British Empire and rule. And that was how the world was. And that was sort of fantastic. Obviously, the war ends and um, the empire falls to pieces and Moncton's furious about this. He kind of told me this amazing story. And the story was sort of roughly this, was that the, the sort of left-wing people, he told me, are motivated purely by envy and jealousy. And he sees himself as this like amazing lone shark figure, like a crusader going around the world teaching people. That's the story that his brain has weaved for him. 
Harrow and uh, Cambridge, you know, had everything, the silver spoon in his mouth. But in his head, he's this plucky underdog fighting this evil plot to take over the world. He's an extreme example, but we're all like this. I don't want to presume you're a left-wing person or a right-wing person, Helen. But I'm like, pretty left-wing. Uh, you're pretty left-wing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, so as a left-wing person, you're probably going to be thinking, well, I love the NHS and I'm totally mm. up with the NHS and I'll be happy to pay more tax if it means the NHS is going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And yet you've got all these right-wing people who want to privatise the NHS, even against all the data. They don't say, I want to destroy the NHS because, because why should my tax money go towards paying for poor people? They say the taxation is, isn't going to work in the long term. Um, it's inefficient, bureaucratic, all that stuff. And we kind of roll our eyes and go, yeah, 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 what a load of old crap. But the thing is, I think they genuinely believe that. Low regulation, low taxation, high competition. Those are the real unconscious reasons. But the story their brain is telling themselves is that, is that it's about efficiency and it's about making the system better. So once you understand that, that these people have this hero maker narrative and the most important thing to their cognition is that they are moral heroes of the stories, then you understand why arguing with Lord Christopher Monckton about some important point of data when it comes to global warming is never going to work because his entire model of the world, including who he is and how the world works and what his mission in life is, is this belief. So that's why you can't dislodge it. But the story that they have to tell themselves at all times is that I am a good person. And one of the ramifications of the storytelling brain is that it isn't just that people are wrong. If they're wrong, it means they're evil. To us, the truth in inverted commas is so obvious and clear. Anybody who can't see the world that we do, it's so obvious that they can't be honestly saying that they don't see it. They must be lying. So you immediately put them in the bracket of evil. If anybody says, for example, well, the gender pay gap, it's not all about sexism, you know, there's there's lots of other reasons why men and women are paid differently. Rather than going, well, actually, let's listen to what they've got to say and look at the data that they claim to have. You just go, well, this person's a misogynist, they're alt-right. You know, you immediately put them in that box. It's so tempting and it's so easy to do. And as I say, like, nobody is innocent. You're guilty, I'm guilty, we all do it, because otherwise you'd be a computer. You can't go through your life radically reorganising your fundamental beliefs every day. We have our beliefs and they bubble up from our unconscious, unbidden, and we can't do much to kind of control them really, especially I'm talking about the ones that are really precious to us. We then go through this process of justifying them and explaining them. We're not logic processors and data processors, we're storytellers. This interview absolutely blew my mind. I actually think I see the world really differently after talking to Will. Also exciting, Will has been interviewed by Russell Brand before and uh, in my humble opinion I was a better interviewer because I don't interrupt people. It's quite difficult to do this but think of someone or a group of people who have a belief system that is absolutely the opposite of yours in every way. It might be anti-vaxxers for you, it might be pro-vaxxers, it might be atheists, it might be vegans, Corbyn supporters who enrage you on Twitter. It could be as extreme as the Westboro Baptist Church. I'm not comparing vegans to the Westboro Baptist Church, don't at me about that. When someone pickets an abortion clinic or they protest a pride parade or even just eat a bacon cheeseburger and enjoy it, whether we applaud them or hate them for it depends entirely on our worldview. But we all believe we're doing the right thing and we're good, honest people no matter what. Isn't that just mad? Isn't that just like we're all walking around in our own version of the Truman Show and we're all Truman? So the anti-vax side are doing the right thing. 
They're protecting their children. They're being vigilant in the face of a very real threat to them. And they're standing up to it. The Provaxes are also protecting their children. They're being vigilant in the face of a very real threat to them. And they're standing up to it. You see the issue, I'm sure. The only difference is the sources they use and the way they read them. And when people are automatically so selective and so determined to prove their own narrative, can you really trust any of it? Can you trust any side? Honestly, since having this conversation with Will about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I've been walking around thinking about this on and off every day and it has quite dramatically changed my view of the world and other people and what motivates them and how they view themselves. I can't really go on Twitter anymore without feeling this, which maybe is a good thing because Twitter is increasingly polarised. If I have to go and get an abortion at some point and someone's outside shoving a picture of a bloody fetus in my face, I would have been quite angry before. But who knows, maybe now I'd be able to look at them and just accept that they think they're doing a good thing, just like I think I'm doing a good thing, and leave them to it. But then still go and have an abortion. I don't know. That's all part of my own hero-making narrative. I think I'm magnanimous and virtuous enough not to tell a pro-life protester to get fucked. Enough about me and my hypothetical abortions. Back to Emily and Courtney. I was a lot more vocal about my children's vaccine status when I was um, anti-vax. I was a lot more, you really need to do your research and read and know what you're doing to your children and how could you just inject them with something. How did people respond generally when you did that? A lot of, what is wrong with you? Why are you, (laughs) why are you butting into my parenting choices? Nobody wants to be told how to raise their children. It really doesn't matter if we're talking about vaccines or car seat safety or anything else. Nobody wants to be told what to do with their children. The doctor that I went to, they asked me if I had any concerns and they were like, well, you know, it's her two months that we recommend, you know, some shots. And so we just talked about it. The nurse was extremely helpful and nice. They said if I didn't want any of them, I didn't have to do any of them. They were not there to pressure or anything. By the time it was over, like, she literally cried for one second like it was one little cry and then she was over it just looking at me like you know what's up (laughs) and um her leg never even got red or sore you know that made me feel a lot better so i imagine you're happy with the decision as someone who's gone from anti to pro yes you're content with how i'm quite happy with the decisions that i've made both of my children are still here with me neither one of them have had any um adverse reactions as a matter of fact out of all of us i'm the one who has the worst reactions to the vaccines i'm the one who has sore injections by spots and goes down for a couple of days after i get them that's that's me i'm the one who gets that (laughs) they're fine there has been some research looking into different interventions and what they found for example is feeling more in control makes you less likely to believe in conspiracy theories but there's no literature looking into how long that is is it quite quickly or to say is it quite over a period of time it's just not known it's only quite a new area to look into conspiracy theories from a psychology viewpoint because initially they're thought to be harmless fun when people believe that team for happy um, just believe in them they thought well what's the point there's there's obviously no harm with this but when actually they could actually lead to changing our beliefs changing how we behave people are thinking actually maybe something is going on here so it's still really early days thinking about what can we do with this sure read conspiratorial accounts maybe but also think about the mainstream think about other 
sources of information that you may trust, feeling empowered enough that you can evaluate and not just be influenced by that conspiracy account. Anyone who isn't psychotic can accept that they're not Jesus, right? At the same time, it really does feel like you're the only right person in the world. Like, that's how it feels to be a normal person. You feel like, I'm right about everything. That's my wife. I know she's wrong about a few things. And my parents, I know the things they're really wrong about. And, and then the further you go out from your you know, immediate world, they're really wrong. They're so wrong. They're idiots. And then it kind of spreads out in this thing. And you feel like you're the only right person in the world. But you're, you can't be the only right person in the world. Because then you would be like Jesus. You'd be like the perfect person. So you go, okay, I accept that I'm not. But then you start rifling through your beliefs. If you pick the things that you really care about, the beliefs that, you, that are really important to you, you think, well, I'm not wrong about that, and I'm not wrong about that, and I'm not wrong about that, and I'm not wrong about that. Mm. You can't find it. You literally can't find the things that you're wrong about. And that just shows, to me, that's a really good thought experiment that shows that all of our biases and prejudices are completely invisible to us. You cannot see them because to you, they feel exactly the same as truth. There is one thing I remember from geography at school. I don't have a fucking clue what an estuary is, but I remember this. The map of the world that you see at school in the UK has the UK right in the middle of it. That's because we, from our perspective, are the centre of the world, and God knows it's caused a lot of problems around the world. But if you go to the US or an African country or Russia or Central Europe, your country or continent is at the centre instead, because that's your perspective. And I didn't know this. Vaccination and any other polarising debate that makes people quite emotional is actually very similar to this, I've realised. Your view and your belief system is at the centre, and everyone else's is just peripheral. It might even be offensive to you, it's so different. That inevitably means you haven't looked at it, you probably haven't investigated it, and it's really, really hard to put ourselves inside someone else's head or argument. It's potentially impossible to even investigate it properly. But I think it's probably worth a try. Do I think people should automatically accept information they're given by scientists and the government? No. I honestly wouldn't trust Theresa May to read the ingredients on the back of a box of cereal without lying at some point. There was a time when most of us would have been peasants working the land, couldn't read, we took richer, more authoritative people's word for it on virtually everything. Medicine, space, fucking why the sky's blue, whatever. A lot has changed. We don't think the world's ending when there's an eclipse. Part of that is because of science, but also because of just general better access to information. The internet gives us the power to question, which is exactly what we should do. One of my favourite things about making this podcast, apart from getting a lot of really interesting emails about potential cults from you guys, always appreciate those, is that I always start the episode and the research with a fairly certain fixed point of view on something. But by the end of the episode, it's always different. I don't necessarily change my mind. I don't change my stance. Every single subject is always so much more complicated and nuanced than I realised at the beginning. And I really like working that out. And I hope that you like working that out as well. Although you get to do it in about 40 minutes. I have to do it in six weeks. But I think that's fair enough.
That's a Cult is written and produced by me, Helen McCarthy. You can follow me on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy and you can follow this podcast at That's a Cult. You can find all the sources I've used for each episode at thatsacult.com so you can do your own reading and research. Thanks to my interviewees, Dr. Dan Jolly, Emily, Courtney and Will Storr. The music in this episode was produced by Antilly Wardy. He's made over a thousand pieces of his music free for people to use, royalty free, as long as you credit him. His details are in the description too. If you want me to investigate a specific community or potential cult, email your suggestions to thatsacult at gmail.com. Your suggestions don't have to be entirely internet based, just niche and compelling and enjoyably weird.